Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, this week, we have part two of the panel that I did last month about protocols and platforms uh, as a future approach to the internet. As a reminder, the event was put on by Lincoln Network and moderated by Lincoln's Marshall Kosloff. Uh, on the panel uh, were EFF's Corey Doctorow, uh, Mai Sutton from the People's Open Network, and Ashley Tyson from the Web3 Foundation, along with myself. Uh, if you haven't already heard last week's episode, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that one first as we sort of uh, jump in in the middle of this one. So just listening to this without hearing last week's might be a little confusing. Uh, last week's episode uh, ended with me discussing what sort of regulatory approaches I thought would and would not make sense in terms of getting us to a more interoperable protocols-based world. Uh, and as we drop in here, it will start with Cory Doctorow questioning whether or not uh, the public is actually happy uh, with the internet giants of today, as that was a bit of the discussion that we had last week in terms of how satisfied people actually were with their internet services. Uh, the latter half of today's podcast is also uh, audience questions that the panel will be responding to. Uh, as a bit of a warning, the audience questions uh, were not mic'd up for the recording, uh, so they're a little difficult to hear at times if you uh, are in a quiet place and can listen closely. You can probably hear them, but it might be a little bit difficult. Uh, however, the answers, obviously, were still mic'd up, and hopefully you can understand uh, the gist of the questions from the answers. I think a few of them um, we asked for sort of clarifying or sort of repeat the questions as well. So hopefully it should be okay, and I apologize if it's a little annoying that you can't fully hear the audience questions. Uh, and with that, uh, I will get you right to the podcast. So enjoy the second half of this uh, fun panel Discussion. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. So I, I am very skeptical of the claim that, that people are generally happy with these services. I, I hear it a lot when I talk about right to repair in Apple. Um, so Apple w led the coalitions that killed 20 right to repair bills at the state level two years ago and continues to campaign against it. And I often hear from people who say, but Apple owners are happy to have their phones repaired by Apple service depots. Well. It's not like there are people who own Samsung phones who are trying to get their iPhones fixed at third-party service depots. Like, by definition, the people who want to use third-party service depots to get Apple repairs are Apple customers. Um, and so, you know, the idea that Facebook has users and not hostages is belied by the fact that they argue for laws that, allow, that makes it legal for them to have hostages. If it were the case, that they never need fear their users leave because they were all content with the status quo, then we could just dispense with the, the great thicket that they've erected around their business to stop competitors from tempting their users to walk away from Facebook, but not all at once, right? Not in this way that no one has ever left 
any kind of technology or community in the history of the universe, right? People don't just make clean breaks. My grandmother, the Soviet refugee, did not never speak to her mother in Leningrad again. She called her on the reg, right? Because even when you've left, you still have a connection back to the place that you were. People who, bought, who used iWorks Suite may have saved their own documents as pages documents, but they still needed to look at Word documents. And the idea that the only problem is that people don't understand that the decentralized web is better than the centralized web, and they won't abandon all of their friends to go use this better protocol, I don't think it's the right frame. I think the right frame is that we should let those, those people use it. And I don't think that it's necessarily the case that we don't need some mandates about how firms conduct themselves. We might need a federal privacy law with some real teeth. We might need other rules that, that govern the firm's conduct in respect of their users. But those rules should be the floor on interoperability and user rights. They should be the minimum that every firm should do. And the maximum should be that we withdraw from them the legal right to decide who can compete with you and how. And instead say, Look, Facebook, you've got a building full of engineers. If you think you can stop someone from logging into your service and letting your users get their own data out, then your nerds can compete with their nerds to see if they can make it happen. And they can do just what Mint did. Mint was the company that used to scrape your finance data. And whenever a bank would block them, they would like tell their users, uh, we can't get your Citibank data because this lawyer at Citibank uh, sent us a threatening letter. Here's his phone number, right? <laughs> and then, you know, miraculously, Citibank would unblock Mint. Right? They can play whatever game they want. You can go head-to-head -head that way. You can compete. And I think the way that you do it without enabling a million new Cambridge Analyticas is you create an interoperator's defense. And, the way you, and that interoperator's defense could be like three sentences, right? Notwithstanding any other statute, it is always lawful and never an offense to allow a bona fide user of a service to access, uh, to, to add more legitimate features to that service for a legitimate purpose. Dum -da -dum -da -dum. And yes, judges are still going to have to ask themselves who is bona fide, what is a legitimate use, but they don't have to, ask, they don't, they get to ask that important question as opposed to being stopped at the question like, did you violate the terms of service? I mean, who among us has not violated terms of service? I'm violating terms of service right now, <laughs> right? Um, and instead, they get to ask the interesting question. Is there a public policy interest being served by this competitor allowing a user to get more data out of their service, allowing a user to connect to their service? And that, I think, makes, makes for a very clean and easy solution that doesn't involve reforming 25 statutes. Because as we've seen with the Oracle case, you know, they can backform new anti-adversarial interoperability theories out of any statute, right? I mean, we see it with GDPR. We see it with, with every statute that, that there are way, that big monopolists find ways to distort them, to turn them into anti-competitive moats. So instead, what we just do is we legalize competition instead of making sure that none of our, our laws criminalize competition. Okay. I'm going to uh, jump in. Um, uh, we're going to do questions in like 50. Um, no, so I'm actually going to speak like right now. <laughs> yeah. um, so, oh man, I totally lost my thought. So, uh, it's okay. Take your time. Um, so, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, I don't want to give too much credence to Peter Thiel, but uh, he is on the board member of Facebook, and he calls competition that competition is for losers, and I think. You know, he's very outspoken, and I just don't know how many investors feel that way, and I don't know how many big companies feel that way. You know, it's like 
we can say how we can talk about how great competition is, uh, but at the end of the day, there are these people who have an immense amount of power, and I don't think they want to give it away. I think they, you know, I I don't want to demonize them. I think they feel a lot of responsibility and think that they can do the right thing. Um, so you know. I, I came you know, through my years at EFF, I, I, I pretty much got pretty disillusioned by the ability to uh, rely on tech companies or even like the tech industry in a lot of ways to try and make laws better, even, in, even from the lens of competition, just because like, things just kept getting worse and things kept, walled gardens kept you know, building their walls higher, uh, these laws just kept getting worse and no matter how many times we talked about these public impacts, lawmakers weren't listening. And so, you know, I think that it will, in a lot of ways, come down to us building other platforms. And, you know, I also think there are other avenues to create incentives for tech companies to become interoperable. Like, we don't need to rely on the Federal Trade Commission. We don't need to, as um, public knowledge, a organization in DC says, create an entire new organization to oversee some sort of interoperability law. Um, there are things like tax incentives. Maybe you can like, have huge tax incentives, not that they don't pay any taxes already, um, but have tax incentives for them to create interoperability. You know, there's other ways to do it. Um, but I think a large part of it is, um, as an organizer, people power, demanding, not just demanding, but building alternatives uh, putting our weight and our energy towards infrastructure that is not Facebook, that is not Instagram, there's not these things that just capture our data and our attention. And even though I think uh, there is a lot of like, you know, sort of impatience with distributed web products, um, there's still a really passionate community of people who are building them. I was the associate producer last year of Decentralized Web Camp um, with the Internet Archive. And we had a lot of folks coming from various organizations and companies uh, that were building these decentralized tools. And you know, it's not like it's not like even Facebook, you know, became a billion-dollar company overnight. There's a lot of sort of slow growth that happens. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, like fighting for competition is not something that really gets a lot of like the layperson excited. <laughs> but what gets people excited is like oh, like, it would be so cool if I could have Twitter and the person running Twitter, Twitter, like, I'm talking about Mastodon, is my neighbor or is, like, my, you know, I don't know, my minister. <laughs> Just, um, but, like, there's different ways to build trust into the networks that we have, and I think these federated ways, these peer-to-peer -peer ways, these ways that there's so many protocols out there already. We know that it works technologically. It's how we organize money, how we organize the people around them that really, I think, will get the energy around it to actually create alternatives. And I'm not saying that you know, state policies couldn't help. Uh, investments really could help as well. Uh, I also work at the Oakland Public Library, and often I work at the, one of the libraries uh, built by Andrew Carnegie um, over 100 years ago. He gave 90% of his 
wealth away to build the uh, public library system in the United States. And that's the kind of bravery we need from investors, too. People who are willing to take risks to build public infrastructure. And the internet has to be that. It's not, like, we can't rely on lawmakers who sadly are very much captured by tech companies, by the lobbyists, not to mention the revolving door with all of these agencies. And I really think that there's other ways to create better alternatives. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good pivot into sort of our last section, which really has to do with the way this alternative world would look like. So obviously, it's not quite going to be the 1990s, but what are the different ways that from each of y'all's perspectives you really see the internet evolving, um, monetization, you know, what is that going to look like in a world where protocols are dominant or at least more prevalent in terms of the general ecosystem? Um, so to put something maybe kind of contrarian out there in San Francisco, uh, prior to working on Web3 Foundation, I um, helped launch a, an organization called DefCAD, which was uh, a search engine for 3D printable files that um, this, this guy Cody Wilson started, and he created a, a gun file called the Liberator. And this uh, search engine was designed to be something that uh, you know supported no takedowns with censorship resistance, um, promoted kind of freedom of speech, and and um, and so it's it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, what this world could look like. And this is perhaps pessimistic, but in my way, it's a, a bit optimistic. Um, in, you know, a, a world like this preserves freedom of speech, but is that something that people are ready for? Um, because as I was talking with Mike about um, earlier, there are all these edge cases and these trade-offs for things that we uh, are really looking to, to, to seek in this decentralized web, right? We, we talk about freedom of speech and, and censorship resistance, but um, with that comes a really great personal responsibility. Um, and I guess it's, it's just a question that I, I like to think about and kind of pose to everyone else as well, is like, is that something Thing that we're truly ready for. How do we moderate that, um, and how do we kind of ensure that um, you know when we're building these things, it creates more fair access, um, but doesn't kind of hinder anybody's rights? Because just to add to that, part of the problem here is that um, those edge cases then demand more moderation. So that's part of the problem is, is that you could decentralize, you do these sort of things, but when those edge cases happen, that's going to cause government, the media, these sort of outside um, mm. sort of actors to sort of join in. Mm. So that's what you're going to have to navigate. Mm. Um, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few different things uh, to this. And, and part of it is that nobody knows what this world looks like, right? And, and nobody's got that crystal ball. And, and, and I think anyone who says that this is what the world's going to look like is wrong, and they're going to be proven wrong. Um, but what's what I think is is interesting about this possible world is that it is one that that everybody or at least a large group of people get to create rather than a small group of people at a very small number of companies, right? The idea behind this is that it opens it up so that if you don't like it, if you don't like the way that this is set up, you can build something different and not have to bring in everybody else, but bring in enough people and pull from, from other sources and make that work and still have some control over the data and how it's used and, and things like that. And that enables something great. So if, you know, if people want a heavily moderated platform, they can go to that or they can build that themselves or they can find the people who have built that and they can live in that world. If people want a less moderated world, 
uh, and they don't mind spam and, and abuse, then they can do that. And, and it allows for, for different situations and building out different kinds of solutions and different attempts, and people can sort of self-select in and have some say in what sort of world they want as opposed to limiting it to, you know, Mark Zuckerberg deciding this is what is allowed, this is what is not allowed. Whether or not that puts more pressure uh, for, you know, for the government to come in and say, whoa, there's really bad content in this corner of the world. Um, that already exists today. We have lots of stuff where people are saying there's, uh, there's horrible people over there. That, 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 that doesn't change. But in this world, we don't have to just rely on, you know, uh, on, on a couple companies you know, within a 50-mile radius of where we're sitting right now making all of these decisions. And I think that enables a much, a much more interesting world in which you know, people sort of self-select into the kind of world that they want to see. So uh, I, I have a friend, um, Cecil Castellucci. She's a fellow Canadian. She's a great writer, musician, librettist. She did a hockey opera that was performed with a Zamboni machine. She's currently writing Bat Batgirl. Uh, the comic for DC. And as one of the small number of women writing mainstream flagship comics, she attracts terrible men on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and they have a method, which is that they send a, uh, an incredibly threatening, awful message as a DM. And then as soon as they see the read receipt, they delete it. And Twitter won't accept screenshots as, um, as uh, reports of harassment. Good for them, right? Because they're too easy to fake. And they also can't recover them. Good for them because if you get arrested and your colleagues at your protest delete the DMs they sent you, you want them to stay deleted. Um, and then these men in her public timeline will send her messages that use that private message that has been deleted as a key to, to harass her. So imagine that Cecil and the 10 other people who are situated like her could set up a Mastodon instance and with or without Twitter's cooperation could federate it with Twitter. They could still be part of our conversation, but they could have a set of rules that reflected their local situation. Right? They could trust each other to accept screenshots. They could not delete DMs, even when the remote party deleted the DM. They could have their own rules right, about what happened in their corner of this giant conversation that if you're in the arts or politics or many other domains, you really need to be a part of. It's a way that you could have your cake and eat it too. The thing about edge cases is that they sound like they're things that only happen occasionally. But at scale, edge cases happen all the time. 2.5 billion users generate 2,500 one in a million use cases every day. It's tens of thousands of edge cases, one in a million edge cases every month. Incidentally, this is why they'll never be able to stop bots, because when you have 2,500 one in a million use cases you have to support every day, you are never going to be able to figure out what's a human and what isn't, right? So the monopolist top preference is to not be regulated, but their second preference is to be regulated in a way that only they can comply with and no competitor could possibly comply with. If we strip them of their monopoly rents by knocking hole after hole after hole in the wall around the walled garden so that all the users leak out, then they will not be able to lobby for the kinds of uh, rules that benefit them at everyone else's cost. I mean, it is possible to make state rules that make sense, right? We're not all dead of cholera, right? And, and yet there is no one in government who is a microbiologist, right? The reason we're not all dead of cholera is because we can have a legitimate process. There is no big cholera. Well, there is that guy who started Juicero now wants us to drink raw water. <laughs> but, but in general, there is no big cholera lobbying for more cholera, more <laughs> microorganisms in our drinking water, and so we're able to survive, right? 
the, the, the fact that there aren't monopoly rents to be gained from poisoning us means that we remain unpoisoned. We could have a similar regime on our internet if only we could erode those monopoly rents that allow for the parochial desires of firms that dominate our internet to dominate our policy outcomes. Sorry, I'm going to have to moderate so we sure. can get my in before we transition. I beg your pardon. To, I'm the gatekeeper here. Um, so before we do our final uh, uh, questions, uh, just get your Of take. course. Uh, so I guess it's sort of touching upon various things, but uh, I think something that we should pay attention to is that protocols aren't neutral either. Um, so it's like I haven't delved into the protocol or the standard now of ActivityPub, but there's certainly design decisions that are made with each protocol that exists. And um, there's someone here, Jay Graver, who did a really great piece comparing different kinds of decentralized social networks and the different trade-offs that you have to make and different kinds of ways that you have decentralization, which is like how ephemeral is the content, how, how do you, is it invite only, is it gossip based, and there's different ways in which the protocol itself actually predetermines various design decisions for the platforms. And I think um, when we are talking, you know, talk about protocols, uh, it, it sounds really appealing to say like, oh, well, you know, it's just posts, it's just users or whatever. But actually, those design decisions are really important early on. And so uh, something when it comes to like an initiative like Twitter or even many of these decentralized distributed web uh, protocols, many of them were designed by one, maybe two, uh, people who represent a very narrow demographic, uh, which you can probably guess. Um, it, you know, they, they have certain ideas about what is needed in the network, what's not important, and it's really important to just have other people at the table. So it's, I'm very optimistic about the different kinds of protocols that exist in this like D-Web space, and it's really important to look at and examine how those protocols are missing different parts of the constituents that make up the internet, which is a very big, obviously, constituency. Uh, also, I think it's important to think about how maybe we don't need the internet to be glo like global in the sense that Facebook is global. I think like part of the reason why we had issues like Cambridge Analytica, things can just go viral and go like wildfire all across the internet. And sometimes it's actually good for the internet to be smaller. We've already talked about this with different communities moderating content. Reddit is actually a great example of that. They have Reddit moderators, mods, who oversee the different communities and you sort of trust that mod to look over what is acceptable or what is not acceptable content. And it's not like a law, but it's actually something that you just sort of see from the community. You see that the community is vibrant and you trust that community of moderators to, to oversee that. So uh, we really need to rethink how, what the internet should look like. Uh, one thing that I was really encouraged by at D-Web Camp last year were the Global Fellows, where we invited many people from largely developing countries that are developing their own internets. They're developing internets where it's not like an app where you can connect to it and you, you know, have posts, but there are people who just do not, um, have never touched a phone, can't, um, just don't have the capacity right now, maybe later, to understand like 
or to learn how to use a smartphone or it's very costly. And so they have like a payphone internet where they record stories or they record knowledge and then the community can just decide these stories. It's sort of like a podcast, I guess, but it's just like very grassroots and it's very locally based. Um, to people in Brazil who are building mesh networks in the rainforest where indigenous people are sharing information about what's going on in their community and it's totally off grid but it's an internet. Um, so that, those are the types of things that need funding, they need energy, they also I think, I mean they don't need legitimacy because they're already working, <laughs> but I think like looking at those different solutions as actual success stories and not just like a Facebook as a success story or even like a globalized protocol as a success story is, is part of the issue. I'm glad we could have a relatively optimistic yeah. note here. Um, so <laughs> we're going to transition to the audience section. Um, Garrett will um, pass around the mic. Um, yeah, thank you, everyone. Yeah, raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, one breath rule. Uh, so, question hand with a question mark. <laughs> so, I read your article, and you did mention bots and anonymous users. I don't want anonymous users. I can understand having the domain for them. So, my question is you did bring those up. But my other part of the question is the dark web doesn't that operate on protocols? And what you're talking about is the tip of the iceberg that the vast majority of people are using because the platforms are easy to use. Um, yeah, so anonymity is a, a separate question in terms of um, how, how important that is. And I think I just had this, if you go. Uh, to my Twitter feed the other day, I just had this whole discussion about how like uh, anonymity is actually really important, and I think that people will quickly blame anonymity for problems online when if you look around at uh, two two points well one, if you look at platforms that don 't have anonymity um, like I'll say next door, uh, the local communities, you will notice an awful lot of really bad activity. Uh, even people put under their real names. Um, you will also discover that uh, anonymity uh, is incredibly useful for uh, people who are being harassed and threatened or at risk. And so I think we have to be very careful about saying like, oh, just toss out anonymity and, and go with some sort of identity. Now you could set up things with protocols where you have um, pseudonymity or reputation that is tied separate from identity. So you could have uh, people who have reputation that is somehow uh, confirmed or verified or endorsed in some sense, uh, but you don't have to reveal who they are. And that you know, creates certain incentives. Um, the other question about like the dark web and, and that's existence, I'm not entirely sure what the question is. I mean, that exists and there are protocols there that and, and services tour, obviously, that makes that happen. But They usually show an iceberg, and the tip of the iceberg goes above the surface is Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, but below it, they classify So, that, sure. Oh, so, so there's... What's the deep web? The deep, the deep web as opposed to the dark web. So basically saying that, like, everyone talks about the big, you're saying, everyone talks about the big platforms that everybody talks about. There is, there are, you know, billions of other websites out there that lots of people use in, in all different ways. Um, and, and, and those exist, and those are, that's a, a good thing, but they're not providing the same kinds of services, I think, as, as what everyone is talking about here. So. Yeah. Question here in the back. Yeah. Right. So one day, 
Mark Zuckerberg said that if he can't find the thing, it's going to end Facebook someone else. So do we have something that's going to end up this circumstances? Didn't quite understand. I mean, the question is, do we have something to end these circumstances that all the world is facing? I mean, some APIs, some securing the, the data of people. Uh, and is, is, so, sorry, is the question what will, what will bring down Facebook? Is that? Is I mean, no, the, the, idea, the idea of and, uh, gathering the uh, data of everybody in, a, in some specific data uh, place. But everybody has their own uh, security or data. So do we have an idea Sovereign to keep people's safety by themselves? Like, we should come with that. And that will end the uh, idea of gathering data from people. So, so the idea being, if, if everybody had their own control of their identity in some sense, would that sort of decrease the need for a Facebook? Well, I mean, so there's, there's an interesting point in there, which is that to some extent, for many people and for many services, Facebook has become the identity layer of the internet. Whether or not that's a good thing, uh, uh, you know, it, <laughs> there, there are a bunch of reasons why that's problematic. There are a bunch of reasons, frankly, though, why that was useful and why, it, why that happened. Um, there are a bunch of companies and not companies but organizations or groups of people who are trying to build sort of an identity layer. It's a very, very, very difficult problem. It has been tried in many, many different ways and it has failed in many, many different ways. Um, but yes, I, I mean, you know, in theory, if someone could do that well, that would be a very useful service and could, you know, lessen the need mm. for, for a Facebook or, or a giant like that. So I, I want to return briefly to the theme of competition here because there is a related subject, which is that uh, if you're not paying for the product, you're the, pr you're the product. This is the thing we often hear. Uh, and and there's the, the conclusion that some people draw is if only you would pay for Facebook, then Facebook wouldn't be incentivized to do this. What we actually see with paid-for platforms is that if they can get away with turning you into the product, you're the product, regardless of whether you are paying. Right? The fact that you need to pay John Deere technicians to come out and enter an unlock code before the part that you yourself installed in your tractor's engine is not a reflection of the fact that John Deere is giving away free tractors. Those are three to $500,000 pieces of equipment which still treat you as the product. Right? So um, to the extent that firms are allowed to treat you as the product, to the extent that Apple can rope you into, say, uh, paying monopoly rents for repairs or can extract rent rents out of their um, uh, software vendors by guaranteeing that there's only one store that iOS users can use, they will still treat you as the product, right? The, the issue here is not advertising, nor is it not, not is it the absence of advertising. It is the absence of any fear that they face competition, competitive pressure from misbehavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a I mean, question just from a woman there as well. Related to that real quick, yeah. and then we'll do the, the question. The, um, yeah, I've never understood the, like, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. I mean, I pay an awful lot for my cell phone service and, and cable and, and internet, and uh, I trust those guys much, you know, much less than uh, services that I get for free. So, so I want to... 
My name's Clea Minehill's Identity Woman. I've actually been stewarding a community working on the identity layer that you're speaking of. And there's actually two standards and protocols that I have a lot of optimistic hope about. We'll see, but one is called Decentralized Identifier. I just had that first face-to-face -face meeting by the W3C. Um, and that's going through that. And there's another one called Verifiable Credentials. And there's a whole movement going on globally with an organization called My Data about building my data operators where people can collect all their own data. And I think we're going to see a real um, explosion in the next year of these new tools and services that um, can, can sort of create a path out of the Facebook box that we're in. And, and I just wanted to name that since it surfaced in the, this conversation. Great. My, I think, has an answer. Um, I, I'm also very optimistic, and I also think that uh, it'll be interesting to see different funding models for that sort of or, those sort of organizations. Uh, it's very hard not to do something bad when you are trying to make money, <laughs> and that's my very cynical view. Um, but you know, if if that is literally the only thing that is written in your bylaws, if that is if your motivation is to Half, you know, is, your motivation is to build something cool, and you know, to um, give back the investment uh, of these, you know, of venture capitalists or anybody who's given you money in the past and making more value, so that the people who gave you money make more money off of you. It's very hard to not compromise your values, and so I think it's equally important to really think about who these organizations are getting money from, how these organizations are organized themselves, are they treating their workers well, are they treating their users well in the beginning, those are really important fundamental like baseline issues that you need to think about before you trust anything. And that's actually, that's Alib's my MO lately is like, well, you know, that sounds like a really cool app bro, but where are you getting your money? <laughs> and, and like, how are you organizing yourself? Are you making like 20 times more than, you know, uh, another employee, maybe one that is a woman or a person of color? Those are things that are really important to think about. And that's, I think, as much of a conversation about the internet infrastructure as like any of these technologies. Moxie had this blog post that, that um, gets thrown at me somewhat frequently. And, and I've taken to throwing it back to people. When people ask, what are the, the challenges to this approach, I, I will point them to Moxie's. Yeah, it's a very well-written, very thoughtful blog post about the, the difficulties of 
protocols, and it's, it's really a governance question that he's pointing out, and it's, it's worth reading and, and worth thinking about. This approach that I talk about is not, uh, you know, it's not easy, and I'm not saying that it is like this, like, you know, panacea. hey, yes, panacea, that's the word I was thinking of, uh, <laughs> that it, it just, you know, solves all problems, and you just follow this, and it's, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 it lays it, it all out there. Each, you know, one of the things that's, that's happened since this paper came out, and certainly since Jack mentioned it, is that, you know, I've been having conversation after conversation about what does this look like? How, how would this actually happen? And, 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 and I will, I'll go down a path and I'll have brainstorming conversation after brainstorming conversation, and every one of them goes in the same way where it's like, well, okay, if you focus on identity as like a key, you know, how, what would that look like? And you go down this path and then all of a sudden you say, ah, well, there's a little problem here. Okay, well, let's try. What if we focus on, on like data storage and data bank where someone can, can, can host their own data? And then you go down this path and you say, oh, well, there's a, there's a problem. Every one of these approaches has certain problems. This, that doesn't mean they're not solvable, but there are challenges involved with each one. Um, and I think what, what, uh, you know, what Moxie's piece highlights is that there is a challenge specifically in just the governance and speed and innovation. Um, there are, I think, solutions to that, um, and there are approaches that you can deal with that, and, and one of them, you know, uh, you know, being completely cognizant of, of the points that, that, that Mai was raising about how money can become corrupting and, and damaging, um, it's also an incentive structure. And if it's structured well, and you can create you know, uh, incentive structures that, that keep competition there and keep incentives to prevent bad behavior and that incentivize good behavior, and there are ways to, to set that up, you might also be able to deal with a bunch of the problems that he discusses um, in terms of being able to actually fund uh, a you know a, a protocol that that can can you can continually update and and innovate on it and I will note that part of the reason why Moxie is able to build his thing is he has a whole bunch of money right now which came from Facebook <laughs> not directly but you know there are reasons why why these things happen but I, I think that uh, what I think the problem of, of Moxie's thesis is that it works very well, but it fails very badly, right? Benevolent dictatorships are great, but Dunning-Kruger is an equal opportunity pathology, <laughs> right? And the idea that, like, Moxie will never make a mistake or, like, this is a guy who sails single-person sailboats around the world. The idea that Moxie will never drown and be succeeded by a monster is, I think, not a thing that we should be trusting significant parts of internet infrastructure to, right? Uh, you know... God emperors are terrific if they're infallible, but they're but but fallibility is is a universal human foible, right? This is why we don't just say, "Well, Mr. Watson, you did discover or steal the structure of the double helix, therefore we'll believe you when you talk about eugenics." We say, "Well, Mr. Watson, you earned that Nobel Prize for the structure of the double helix. Now, let's subject your eugenics theories to the same scrutiny that we subjected the rest of it to, right? And and so we don't know what what Moxie is going to do. I think he's a swell person in my experience. He's a great guy, but Silicon Valley was founded by Shockley after he got the Nobel Prize for discovering the silicon basis for transistors. It's why it's not called gallium arsenide valley. Shockley <laughs> became a rampant conspiracist who spent his Nobel Prize money paying people to get um, uh, uh, sterilized because he was a eugenicist, right? And like, 
you know, the, the fact that you're really good at something doesn't mean that you're always going to be good at it or that you're good at everything. And I think that's why we do need pluralism and decentralization. Not because smart people aren't smart, but because they can sometimes be really foolish. I want to respond. Yeah, go but... ahead, Mike. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I guess I want to be clear that it's not this like clear dichotomy between this benevolent dictator or an evil dictator or you know, totally uh, collective, cooperative, some sort of like loose organization, there's a lot of solutions to uh, decision making. And I think the, the critical point, and I think for any democracy, right, is like you just want to build in some great feedback loops. Like you just want to be able to look at how well the system is working and figure out whether the people involved in that system are doing better. And that could be by everybody having an equal vote. Maybe everybody votes some representative to vote. And there's many cooperatives around the world that have done this for centuries. Um, and so we can learn from these different types of models of governance that are able to have different stakeholders, that are able to have different ways of considering issues that come about and dealing with them. And one more sort of plug for Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in 2009 for her work on governing the commons. She did years and years of work on examining what she called common pool resources or the commons of actually finite uh, resources like a body of water and looking out looking how different communities around the world from developed countries in Sweden to in developing countries and looking at the different patterns of how people were deciding rules amongst themselves, how they were uh, looking at the relationships between them and the resource and that those relationships are actually what's key to enabling that resource to exist. And I think those types of uh, considerations are really important to apply to the internet because it is, I believe, something that really ought to be a commons. And thinking about how we can break down these decisions and how we relate to each other and how we make decisions is, is really important. And part of that is the, the ability for, you know, if, if a group is, or, or an individual is making bad or dangerous decisions, the ability mm -hmm. to, to move and leave and make different choices, right? right. Which is part of why it's important to, to have the, the different options that we're talking about. Um, we're aware of structure here. This side has not asked a question. <laughs> We've got one over there. But, um, oh, there's one right there. Okay. Yeah. We've got time for one more question. All right. Better be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Well, thank you all, I guess. Um, I'm just curious to hear all your thoughts on uh, why terms of service are not effective benchmark for delineating the role of any of these firms and whether that's even uh, what you think and then maybe if we get into that, that would be, be great. Well, who even reads terms of service? Nobody reads a terms of service. Nobody really feels bound by a terms of service. Nobody follows it. I mean, uh, Corey already it. said he's breaking oh a terms God. of service sitting up here. Uh, I'm curious which one, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, and, but I think, of yeah, all of them. Um, it, Anything that I, I generally have issues with, with sort of, you know, these are contracts that you don't get to negotiate. These are contracts that, you know, that nobody cares about and nobody reads. I, I have trouble taking them seriously as a contract 
in the normal sense of a, of a contract. Um, and it's not like if you don't like the terms of service of a Facebook that you can call up Zuck and say, hey, uh, I'm going to cross out section 2B and I'd like to write in you know, this. That's not the way it works. And so it's not, it's not a contract in the traditional sense. And so I don't, I don't think there's much value in a terms of service other than as a cover your ass uh, situation for, mm. for the lawyers that's at the companies. Mm. Of course that's why. Yeah. Mm. That's why they exist. Because mm. they're, they're not about... Yeah. And that's true of any of those. Like privacy policies also, same thing. Privacy policies I think are the dumbest thing in the world. I think we've built this really weird situation where we rely on a privacy policy as like our as our privacy mm -hmm. policy, you know, globally, like this, this, and, and the, the funny thing is, like a privacy policy, in, in well, laws are changing, but but, you know, currently in the U.S. for the most part, the privacy policy can say we don't give a shit about your privacy, and we're gonna just you know, mm -hmm. throw away all your data and give it to whoever wants it, and you think, oh, I they have a privacy policy, they must <laughs> keep my information private because nobody reads it and, and you know, the only way they get in trouble is if they violate that privacy mm -hmm. policy. So they actually have, companies have incentive to make that, write that as broadly as possible. Again, for the lawyers to... to and they to can change it at any time. Yeah. Thirty seconds. Right. Do you remember pop-up ads? The reason we don't have pop-up ads now is because users could install ad blockers. Right? It, and those ad blockers violated the terms of service, which said, you will render the page the way is, that is optimal for our shareholders, not for mm -hmm. your experience. Right? If we allow firms to dictate one-sided terms of service to users, then users don't get to push back in a way that establishes an equilibrium between the profit motive of the firm and the preferences of, of customers. Instead, what you end up with is these take-it-or-leave-it-garbage deals where you have 20,000 words of sprawling legalese that say, by being dumb enough to be my customer, you agree that, you're allowed to, that I'm allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandmother and wear your underwear <laughs> and make long-distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge, right? That's why terms of service should not be enforceable regardless of what they say. Some should be, but not any term of service. So a quick round of applause for our panelists. Thank you. <laughs>